Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 19th of March. You're listening to The World Review from The New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily, welcome back on the pod. How are things in Washington? Well, you know, Jeremy, normally I come onto this podcast and I give you gloom and doom from the United States of America, and specifically from Washington, D.C. But this time, I'm going to ask you how things are in Berlin, specifically with the vaccine. Well, there's plenty of gloom and doom there, enough to share around, I'd say. Yeah, it's it's going very, very slowly, even by the slow standards of the European Union countries. Germany's, I think, is well in the bottom half in terms of the speed at which it's vaccinating its population. And there's a sort of broader sense of gloom around the political scene as well, particularly the centre-right Christian Democrat party, Angela Merkel's party, which did very badly in the two important state elections last Sunday that I flagged up on last week's episode. Infection rates are rising again. There's obviously a third wave coming. We're still semi-locked down, but we expect a, a new hard lockdown to come soon. A corruption scandal's roiling the, the governing party. So all in all, a general sense of despondency, albeit it does make the upcoming federal election more interesting in, in September, more of which another week. But let's get on. And what's been your moment of the past week? I have a very sad moment of the past week, which is there was a shooting in Atlanta in the state of Georgia. Six of the eight people who were killed were Asian women. This comes amidst a year in which Asian Americans and Asians in America have been violently targeted. Hate crimes against Asians, Asian Americans were up 150% from 2019 to 2020. There have been roughly 3,800 hate crimes reported in the past year. And this can't be divorced, one, from America's racist and sexist history against Asians, and in particular Asian women, who reported 2.3 times the number of hate crimes as Asian men did, and also from the, the last year, right, in which in which our leaders used phrases like China virus, Wuhan virus, even as Asian Americans said, please stop, you are making us less safe. And I think, you know, we're going to discuss geopolitics in the coming podcast and, and we'll continue to do so. But I think it's important to remember that there are very real consequences for the language that we use. And two countries can be adversaries without vilifying populations who live within those countries. That's my moment. What is your moment of the past week? 
So a couple of moments. On Tuesday, I was interested to see the UK publishing its new integrated review on security, defence and foreign policy, which included a mention that the country intends to tilt towards the Indo-Pacific region in its new post-Brexit reality. There was very little mention of the EU, so I thought that was notable. And Wednesday night, I mentioned this partly because it ties up a previous episode of the podcast. We had the results of the Dutch election, as previewed by you and Ido with your guest Pepine Bergson a couple of weeks ago. As Pepine predicted, it looks like a historic fourth term for the Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, with an interesting question as to whether the increased support for a progressive pro-European party, the D66 party, will shift Dutch European policy. And listeners can read my takes on both the UK Security Review and its Indo-Pacific tilt and the meaning of the Dutch election for the European Union on thenewstatesman.com, along with all of the pieces that we mention in this episode. And with that, on to our main discussion. It's been a dramatic week in Brazilian politics. The country is experiencing record COVID-19 infection numbers, around 90,000 a day at the moment. In many parts of the country, hospitals are at or over capacity and not coping. Jair Bolsonaro, the country's hard right president of two years standing, has persistently refused to take the pandemic seriously or support necessary action. And against that backdrop is the fact that Luis Inácio Lula da Silva is suddenly back on the scene. Lula, as he's known, was the country's leftish and popular president from 2003 to 2011. He pushed through a lot of progressive social programs and is associated with a period when Brazil was hailed as a new rising power and a, and a country experiencing a positive trend. But he was sub- subsequently, after office, caught up in a corruption scandal that also brought down his successor Dilma Rousseff in 2016. And in 2017, he was sentenced to nine and a half years in prison. However, last Monday, as we record this, his conviction was annulled and was ruled that he needed to be retried. And that opens the door to his possibly challenging Jair Bolsonaro in the presidential election due next year. He has since launched himself back into politics with a fierce criticism of Bolsonaro's record on the pandemic. So there's much to discuss. And to do so, we're very pleased to welcome our guest this week, Professor Roberto Mangabeira Unger. Professor Unger is a Brazilian philosopher and social and legal theorist who is the Roscoe Pound Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and also served as Minister of Strategic Affairs in the Lula administration and then later under the Rousseff administration. A theme of his time in office and his academic work, including his most recent book, The Knowledge Economy, is that progressives need to be more confident and transformative about the supply side of the economy, going beyond the old Keynesian agenda associated with the left. And it's also an important theme in the cover feature that Professor Unger has written for this week's issue of The New Statesman about the future of Britain after Brexit. Um, That's available online and in print as we speak and as this podcast goes out. So first of all, Professor Unger, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We will doubtless touch on many of the themes of of your essay on Britain in this conversation, but we want to make Brazil our focus. I think to start off, as someone who knows the machinery of the Brazilian state, pretty well, as you do, have worked worked within it and also observed it from the outside. I'd like to ask you a question I think gets lost in some of the commentary about the, the country's current predicament, which is how much of Brazil's current troubles, particularly with regards to the pandemic, can we attribute to the Bolsonaro administration? And how much of it do you think is to be explained by more deep-rooted problems and dysfunctions uh, in the Brazilian state? First, let me make clear my position I am not a disinterested observer. I can't speak about Brazil as an academic. I'm a participant in Brazil's political life, and I take sides. 
So I was a minister of the Lula and Dilma administrations. They were both coalition governments. I was never a member of the PT. I'm a longstanding critic of the PT. I opposed the PT in the recent presidential election, and I will oppose it again in the coming election. I, I support a different candidate. Brazil's terrible sufferings now have a long history. Between 1870 and 1970, Brazil was one of the fastest growing countries in the world. And then it stopped. And for the last 40 years, the Brazilian economy has stagnated. And relations within the country have become embittered. In these 40 years, the country was governed until recently by center-right and center-left parties, and especially two major parties, the Social Democratic Party, which despite its name is a center-right party, and the Workers' Party, which could be characterized as a center-left party. Both these parties implemented a version of the same program. And the program had basically two parts. One part was fiscal discipline, supposedly to win financial confidence and on the basis of financial confidence investment. There would be a rain of money if we signed on the dotted line and displayed our fiscal rectitude. Of course, it didn't happen. It never happens that way anywhere in the world. Rebellion is not always rewarded but obedience is invariably punished. And so it was with us. And the second part of this shared project was the distribution of the leftovers to the poor in the form of transfer programs. We must come to the assistance of our poor fellow citizens, but this pobrismo, this focus on poverty through transfers is no substitute for a strategy of national development. So this project failed. There were periods in which the commodity prices rose and then Brazil had superficial relief. So the country took refuge in the riches of nature. We have these vast natural resources, agriculture, ranching, and mining. So the basic economic activity in Brazil became to put untransformed soy, meat, and iron ore in ships and send the ships to China and to a few other places, and to receive in return all the creations of the human intellect. So we have this tremendously vital country, enormous dynamism coming from below, and we have unequipped ourselves. That's the background. So in this atmosphere now, further poisoned by accusations of corruption, Bolsonaro was elected president uh, two years ago. So it's just a Brazilian variant now on a worldwide theme. The establishment project of the center-right, center-left fails, a vacuum is created, and the populace comes into the vacuum. Now, what is the program of this populace? The program of this populace is a caricature-like version of the previous program, financial confidence and pobrismo. It's basically the same program, but adorned 
with culture wars. And then into this mess comes the great crisis of the pandemic. So that's a picture of this situation. It's not a Brazilian idiosyncrasy. It's an extreme variation on a worldwide predicament. Okay, so you mentioned that this is a Brazilian variant on kind of a global theme. I was curious what you make of the comparisons between our former president, Trump, and Bolsonaro in general, and also specifically on their handling or lack thereof of the pandemic. Well, there are great similarities. There are, there are obvious differences, too. That's, we don't have to waste our time in the in the fine point description okay. that we could observe for a novelist. But... <laughs> It's an analogous situation. And more important is to understand that Brazil is the country in the world most like the United States, although this fact is not widely appreciated in either of these two countries. So you have two societies, two countries of almost identical size, one in the north, one in the south, established on the same basis of European settlement and African slavery, and conquest of the Indian tribes. These two societies are the most unequal of their respective types by far. The United States of the rich industrial societies, Brazil of the major emerging economies. And paradoxically, in these two very unequal countries, the majority of ordinary men and women seem to continue to believe that everything is possible. So there's the religion of possibility in the midst of immense religious confusion and contest. There are striking differences as well. A characteristic of the American political culture is its institutional idolatry. So the Americans believe that they discovered at the time of the foundation of the Republic, the definitive form of a free society. And that the rest of humanity must either subscribe to this formula or continue to languish in poverty and despotism. In Brazil, we have the reverse problem, equally grave, that our elites never really believed in the country. And our institutions are all imported, they're all copied. So they're like borrowed clothes that don't serve us. These societies are like strange mirrors or transmutations of each other. And it's not surprising, given this context, that the parallelism should continue to occur and that we should have such trouble in deriving enlightenment from them. On the point about the parallels, I mean, another one that strikes me as a non-expert about Brazilian politics, but you know, reading into the subject, is the role of judicial debates in the political arena and conversely, political debates in the judicial arena, you know, in both in both Brazil and the United States, the Supreme Court. And I imagine you characterize the Brazilian Supreme Court as a as a pale facsimile of, of an original. Well, it, has, it has a very different culture. So in our society, the legal elite embodies the culture of the traditional middle class oriented to the learned professions and to European culture. And a theme of this old middle class, because now we have a second mestizo middle class that's quite different, is the foreshortening of institutional debates by moralistic debates. Because there's such difficulty in Brazil as around the world in understanding problems structurally and in generating structural solutions to them, 
things are simplified as moralistic problems. So a significant part of the Brazilian middle class seems to believe that corruption is the main problem of Brazil. This is absurd. We do have a corruption problem, which is rather narrowly focused on the relation between money and politics. But by any standard, Brazil is much less corrupt than all of the other continental developing countries, China, Russia, India, South Africa even. But it's a simple way of understanding the problem. Now we have a religious conflict. We have a second middle class coming from below, a petty bourgeoisie of mixed race that has embraced a culture of self-help and initiative. Many of them are evangelicals. We have tens of millions of neo-Pentecostal Protestants in Brazil now, alienated from Brazilian society. So this is another theme of the traditional culture of the old Brazil, the combination in each social relation of power, exchange, and sentiment. The formula of social life is the sentimentalizing of unequal exchange. The Protestants are in rebellion against that, it's a kind of liberalism for the masses. They secede into their little worlds of promise keeping, respectability, propriety, and so forth. Against that background, then, the culture wars. The populist demagogue then tries to translate the structural issues into moralistic ones and into this cultural struggle. It's a diversion that, is, that wears thin quite quickly. Bolsonaro's support is sinking. The uh, nucleus of his hardcore support is in three areas. The evangelicals, whom we have failed to, to address and to engage, we, the rest of Brazil. Farming interests, not the cosmopolitan international agribusiness, but the local, provincial, rural elites. And then the police apparatus, that's his hardcore support. But he could not have been elected, and he will not be elected again unless he has wider support beyond this core. And that wider support is eroding very quickly. So that's one aspect of the electoral situation. On the other hand, in the election of 2018, the most powerful factor was resistance to the PT, Lula's party. The election was essentially a plebiscite about the return of the PT to power. In a country in which the decisive majority would pay almost any price to avoid the PT returning to power. And now there's disagreement about the relative strength of that veto on the return of the PT to power. Now, I think that our hearers might say, well, this kind of anti-leftism. For my money, the PT is not leftist. It has the program that I just described to you, fiscal responsibility and helping the poor, handouts to the poor. That's not leftism in my book, or it's not any kind of structural project. I believe that a preponderance of the Brazilian people still don't want this. If Lula were to be a candidate, and if we were to reach the second round together with Bolsonaro, 
I still think the most likely outcome would be the re-election of Bolsonaro because the objection to the PT remains stronger than the objection to Bolsonaro. But around 40% of the electorate now indicate in our many polls that they prefer anyone else, a third candidate. And so there's an enormous area to develop an alternative. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. I know you don't want to get into punditry, but can you can you imagine a third candidate, neither Bolsonaro nor, nor Lula, coming through who might be able to defeat Bolsonaro? I support one of them. So I think that... We're still a year and a half away from the election and anything is possible. It's even possible, although unlikely, that Bolsonaro would not reach the second round. So they're all possible combinations because you have to understand the social reality of the country. The lights are turned off. The mass of the Brazilian people have tremendous difficulty in discerning who's who. They're trying to find a way to escape. They're going around the the fence, seeing where there's a hole so they can come out. But it's night. There are no stars. There's no moon. And they're trying to feel their way. So this is the confusion. Periodically in Brazil, the elites try to suppress the presidential regime and to establish a pseudo-parliamentary regime because it would allow them to concentrate power among themselves and avoid this periodic fright that they suffer every four years, that some outsider might come out of nowhere and conquer central power. But there we are. They presented this issue repeatedly to the Brazilian people. And each time the people have rejected the parliamentary proposal, intuiting correctly, that it is an attempt to confiscate popular sovereignty. You said you you, you were supporting another candidate. Am I to take it at that, that that's um, Ciro Gomez? Ciro Gomez, yes. Is there some sort of coalition that's broad enough in Brazilian society, as you depict it, that could be captured by a candidate? I mean, Mr. Gomez is... Sort of, is in, princi- a- in principle, of course, because we need any alternative in Brazil to become a majoritarian coalition cannot lock itself up in a sectarian leftist discourse. It has to speak to the the interests of labor and of production. It has to be a productivist project. And if it is not a productivist project, it can't propose an escape from the situation that I described. So the fundamental situation, which is of enormous interest, is, is this. Like many countries in the world, this is a worldwide phenomenon, we deindustrialized. Conventional industry is not coming back. Now, what's the new vanguard? It's the innovation economy, the knowledge economy. That exists where it exists, only in the form of a series of fringes that exclude the vast majority of people and of businesses. The shortcut to economic growth no longer works, conventional industrialization. The alternative to it, which would be a socially inclusive form of the new vanguard of the knowledge economy, seems to be inaccessible. 
that's not just our problem. That's the problem of the United States. That's Britain's problem and so forth. That's a universal problem. It's the Brazilian variation on that problem. So the project would have to be an inclusive productivism that would speak to the interests of those who work and produce and not simply speak to the elite rentiers and the popular rentiers who are the beneficiaries of these transfer programs. Address the Brazilian people not as beneficiaries, but as agents, not to be co-opted, but to be empowered. Now, this is a formidable transformation of political discourse. The good thing is that Brazil, unlike the United States, there's a bias in favor of outsiders. I know it very directly through my own experience. I've gone through the whole country, every state, the interior of every state. I've spoken with people in every class of society. Now, I'm a strange figure because I'm very ceremonious. I don't have the easy way characteristic of much of Brazilian culture. I speak with something of an accent. I wear a black suit and people ask me in the streets whether I'm an evangelical minister. But nevertheless, I'm saying this because my experience is an experience of complete openness. The country is ready, is capable of taking a surprising turn. But the turn has to be organized in this dense fog. So it's enormously exciting because it's the real thing. That's what politics is for. And all these labels, like this ridiculous idea that Lula leftist. So he's the kind of leftist that the New York Times likes, right? Uh, Doesn't rock the boat. Don't frighten anyone. Humanizing, the humanization of the inevitable. That's the kind of thing they want. It's what Darcy Hibero, a Brazilian anthropologist said, is the left that the right likes. And then supposedly the alternative to that is some crazy radicalism, all all confused that these categories are inadequate to describe the, the reality about which we're speaking and its possibilities. So somehow we have to break through all of this confusion and generate real alternatives and present them in a narrative language that can be readily understood and debated by every person. Well, I guess the follow-up there, here in the United States, we're now having this conversation as to whether from this horrible experience that was the pandemic under Trump, we can have you know progressive legislation and this transformational moment in our society. Is there a similar conversation happening in Brazil? Do you think that you've been describing what should happen? Do you think that it will happen in Brazil? Well, I don't predict things. Okay. In my book, prediction is a grave sin. And Dante Alighieri described the punishment for those who predict, which is that there's a rope around their neck, uh, pushing their neck backward because their view of the future is some defraction of their vision of the past. Okay. We so, don't want that to happen to you. So avoid the prediction. Well, it's, it's far too late for us. We do, we do lots of predicting. Dante would have us down as, uh, yeah, gone as. But you, you were asking about the United States. Well, that's a, a long conversation. Right now, we all know what the situation is in the United States. The traditional centrist center-left establishment has come back to power. 
its hands are full of money, but not full of ideas. There's the emergency, there's the stimulus, but there's no sign yet that they understand the gravity of the problem. So in the United States, a productivist project is also urgent. The American economy is kept afloat by the policy of easy money. The national government has no growth strategy. The growth strategy is subcontracted to the central bank. There is a tiny fraction of oligopolies, of tech oligopolies that are highly profitable and generate huge pools of cash. And then in that world, there's a pietistic discourse of alternatives to shareholder primacy and responsible capitalism and so forth. There's the marriage of piety and oligopoly. Then there are hundreds or thousands of zombie companies, fail startups or startups destined to fail. And then there are the traditional enterprises that are retrograde. So the economy is driven by credit and debt, made possible also by the easy money policy on one hand and by the structural imbalances on the world economy on the other hand. The mirror of the American commercial and capital deficits are the Chinese trade and capital surpluses. So that's the United States. It has to get out of that. Before we turn back to Brazil, because I think that before we do that, it's too, too interesting a chance to pass up. Do you see any parts of the US left or the, or the US intelligentsia grappling with, with those realities? One gets the sense from, from here in Europe that there's a lot of fizzing and bubbling happening on the US left at the moment under the sort of the, the less than thrilling umbrella of the Biden administration. They're open, but their approach is oblique. They're not squarely facing this task that I described of developing an inclusive productivism. They're doing it obliquely. So one example of the oblique approach is the Green New Deal. So initially, environmentalism arises in these rich countries like the ones you're in as a diversion. History has disappointed us to all these struggles that have gone nowhere in the 20th century or have led to disasters. So we'll seek refuge in the great garden of nature and drown our sorrows. It shouldn't be that way. As you could think, the environmental issues should be provocations to retake the structural debates in new form. A green economy is either primitive or highly advanced. There's nothing in between. So these oblique things like healthcare, environmental, could all lead into the central subject of the empowerment of the American people and the construction of a productivist project, but it hasn't happened yet. And the universities are part of the problem rather than being part of the solution because of the domination in the high culture of these different forms of rationalization of the existent. We have in the hard positive social sciences, the rationalization of the real. In the normative disciplines like political philosophy, pseudo-philosophical props to the humanizing practices of corrective redistribution or idealization of law. And in the humanities, a subjectivist adventurism detached from the reimagination and remaking of society. That's the world of the intelligentsia. So the intelligentsia is lost in this wilderness, in this forest of, of anti-structural diversions. It's not as if the United States were 
the only one. Each country is lost in a different way. It's like the phrases at the beginning of Anna Karenina, every happy family is alike, but the unhappy ones are each unhappy in their own way. So this is the unhappiness of the nations of the world today, but they're connected. And there's nothing like engagement. I recommend it to our hearers because hearing all of this, you might become despondent. You might think the way the European intellectuals generally think that there's crisis, decline, decadence, reckoning, but you start to act in the world, you discover transformative possibility. The United States and Brazil are full of these transformative possibilities, of these little epiphanies, because they have the priceless resource of life, of vitality. It's like the poet Herderlin said, he who thinks most deeply loves what is most alive. So these are lovable societies because they have this intense vitality. But now vitality needs an ally and the ally of vitality is the imagination. So I think this is, this is the spirit in which we should see this. I think it's foolish to look at something like the Brazilian situation as just one more little political drama because it's all part of the same situation that we're facing in all of these societies. The real story is not a story about collapse, crisis. The real story is a story of immense possibility that is latent in these societies and struggling to find a way to express itself. I have one last question for you, which is related, I think, very much to this, which is I can remember this past summer when the Black Lives Matter protests were really at, at their peak here in the United States. In Brazil, people were saying that this really resonated with them. And there was, you know, Black Lives Matter here in Brazil, too. Is that something that continues to resonate? Yeah. So we have the, the problem of racial oppression in Brazil in a different form because there's generalized miscegenation in much of the country. Look at me. I have a considerable amount of both black blood and Indian blood. Under the American one drop rule, I would be a black, which the Brazilians would consider ridiculous. But there's still this reality in the country that there is the elite, the educated elite, which whatever its racial composition is alienated from the country traditionally had its eyes fixed on Europe, now in the United States. And there was this idea that Brazil was beginning to ascend. Then it was struck down. It was sixth or seventh largest economy in the world. Now it's not even in the top 10. Now the, the thousands of people are dying every day. The country is in economic stagnation. There's migration out of Brazil, which is an entirely new phenomenon in our country. So this is an extraordinary set of events, which is in dramatic contradiction to our nature. It's the new world, the possibility, life, ascent. So the central message is we become bigger together. But to do that, we have to equip the agent economically and educationally. So that's the fundamental issue. Everything else is a diversion in the United States or in Brazil. To equip them, and this is the point that the Americans don't understand, we need to innovate in the institutions. We can't do that in the low energy form of democracy that, that exists in the world today, 
or in the established form of the market order. We can't allow the market to remain crucified on the cross of a single dogmatic version of itself. So the Americans who have immense experimentalist impulse in their culture have always exempted their institutions from the reach of that impulse. They now have to lift that exemption. And the Brazilians have to get serious about the reorganization of the country. The last great moment of institutional organization in Brazil was in the Vargas period. And that was this, the corporativist arrangements under which we implemented import substituting industrialization. That was the old vanguard. Now that no longer works. And so we need something else and something else that is not just for manufacture, but for services, for agriculture, to bet on, on the mind, on equipping the, the capabilities of our people. That's the great task in our country. So I think that the most useful thing that your readers could do to understand the Brazilian situation is to begin by discarding all the traditional ideological vocabulary, right? It's the left against the right, it's this against that. It's just concealing the real nature of the problems and of the possibilities. So that brings us to our You Ask Us section, where we take questions from listeners. We had a number sent in about Brazil, and I'd like to ask you, if I may, two together. One is in the direction of the, of the Cape and Dagger politics, but I think an important one, because it sets the conditions in which what you described can happen. And that's from a listener called Matt, who asks straightforwardly whether Bolsonaro could carry out some sort of coup if he lost the next election. No, I think he could not. I think he could not for the fundamental reason that the armed forces are not on board with such an idea. I think they are genuinely committed to the preservation of Republican institutions. The dominant opinion in the higher officer corps now is seems to be that they went too far in attaching themselves to the Bolsonaro administration, permitting the too many officers of the reserve or even of active service came into the government. They would not follow him. One of my responsibilities in the government was the formulation of the national defense strategy. And as a result of that, I came to work very closely with the officer corps and to respect it. I am convinced that they will not follow any Bonapartist attempt on the part of Bolsonaro. They feel as frustrated as all the other Brazilians are by what's happening in the country. They were preponderantly opposed to the PT administrations. And they were hopeful about Bolsonaro, but Increasingly, they're puzzled and horrified, as everyone is. That answers that question. And then the second one from an unnamed listener, which speaks to several of the things you've been talking about, is could Lula or anyone else, so regardless of who ends up as president, really make Brazil a country touted as a superpower again? And I suppose that refers to that period in, in the sort of the first decade of the, the new century in which Brazil was hyped as the new coming thing, as, as the future country, or was it the nation of the future, as Stefan Zweig called it. And there's been this long-standing vision of Brazil as a kind of whether you use the phrase superpower or as as a sort of epitome of vital modernity. And you've 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 expressed that in your energizing vision for the country. 
Is that the right, right way to look at it, first of all? And, and, and well, is, I think is it we have to distinguish two things. The first is we have to distinguish Brazil having an exemplary role in the world from Brazil being a superpower in the traditional sense of geopolitics. These are two different things. We should not connect them. So on the first, yes, Brazil can become an exemplary country, a country which is immensely appealing because it's a fundamental characteristic of Brazil is its syncretism. It's the mixture of everything with everything else, not just in race, but in culture and people, its openness, no sharp divisions. Now, our problem has been, we haven't made the connection, the transition to a structural agenda, to ideas that would inform the reorganization of the country in the economy in politics and in education. And that's what we would have to do. And then Brazil can be an exemplary country. But that then brings us to the other theme of the superpower, which is quite distinct. Brazil is the only country of continental dimension in modern history, which has ascended when it ascends without wanting to have imperial power, not even over its neighbors. It's not part of our project of our history, but we have a problem now, which is also not a unique problem. We ascend or would continue to ascend in a world situation in which there are these two great powers in the world, the United States and China. And we have to reshape our relation to each of them so that our relationship to both of them is not the expression of our subordination as it now is in different ways. In China, because it's, Brazil has become just a reservoir of natural resources for Chinese ingenuity in the United States, because the United States doesn't take us seriously, has no reason to take us seriously up to now, and for a very practical reason, which is that, that the geopolitical basis of the American ascendancy in the world is the American hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. The reason why the United States can roam the world is that it is the only power in the world that has an undisputed regional hegemony. Obviously, that's incompatible with our ascent. But we're not going to debate the Monroe Doctrine or the Roosevelt Corollary as theoretical matters. We have to engage the United States, the American government, and American society in a whole range of joint initiatives until gradually those hegemonic ideas become simply irrelevant. So I have the experience of representing Brazil in the BRICS meetings with those giants, China, Russia, and India. And we have a unique position because we're far away from their thousands of years of conflict. We're in the most Pacific area of the world. We are above suspicion. And so the internal dynamic when there was a controversial problem was to assign it to us. Now, of course, Brazil has, has resigned from this position under Bolsonaro. So it's an empty space, but we can come back. There's this unique role of such a large country with such immense appeal, presenting no imperial threat to anyone. That's why for 150 years, we've had no real experience of war 
other than our very limited participation in the Second World War on the side of the Allies. But the premise of all of this is that we be able to organize a consequential internal project. And we won't have a consequential internal project so long as we think that we can lift ourselves up by convincing financiers that we're respectable and giving some handouts to poor people. So with that lofty task ahead of Brazil, we thank our listeners, both Matt and Anonymous, and turn to our last segment, for which as ever, we will share what we are looking ahead to in the week. Professor, as you are our guest, we will let you go first. Without a doubt, the most consequential issue is what's going to happen next in the discussions between the United States and China. So we have these two superpowers in the world. Each of them is an awkward Gulliver. Each of them has a strained relation to the rest of the world, right? China is in an unparalleled situation in modern history. It's the only great power in the world that has no friends, not a single one. Not, none of those powers in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, none of those beneficiaries of the Belt and Road Initiative are friends of China. China's adversaries might relish this isolation, but the isolation historically prefigures war, this experience of encirclement and, and division. So that's China. Now, then there's the United States. The United States is full of friends and allies, and the world stands, stands under its spell, but it has no normal relation to the world. It's not engaged with the problems of humanity. It's, it's, it's tarnished by its institutional idolatry, its commitment to its own formulas. So it's too dangerous for the rest of the world to let these two superpowers deal with their relations to each other alone. We have to help organize this. We, the rest of the world, we have to try and engage them in a series of forms of cooperation so that we can do to these two Gullivers what the Lilliputians did with the original Gulliver, which is to tie him down with strings. The strings are these forms of cooperation. So we should accompany with great interest the awkward and hostile conversations of these two powers, but we shouldn't passively wait. We should start to think about initiatives that the rest of us can take to engage these two countries in cooperative activity within the world order. I'm going to jump in and cut Jeremy in sharing my moment because I was also going to speak about the US and China, but now I will say specifically that I will be looking at the meeting between Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and his Chinese counterpart Wang Yi, which is next Monday. If you missed it, China and the US had an extremely awkward meeting in Alaska. What was supposed to be a four-minute photo op turned into an hour-long exchange of barbs. The US said China was grandstanding. China said that we don't need to take this from the US. It was tense. And as you just said, Professor, how the rest of the world responds is is critical. One can guess how Russia will respond based on past past behavior, but we'll see what comes out of this meeting between Lavrov and his counterpart. And Jeremy, that just leaves uh, leaves you. What will you be watching? All of the above, as well as, of course, the Israeli election next Tuesday, the 23rd, which I discussed at length with our colleagues Alona Ferber and Ido Fock on last week's episode. So I won't add any more detail on that, other than that it's the fourth in two years and might be as 
inconclusive as the rest. So I'll keep an eye on that along with other things. But I think I think that's about enough detail on that. So I think that leaves us only to say a very big thank you to Professor Unger for joining us and sharing his thoughts on Brazil, politics, the US and the world. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And as I mentioned earlier, we will be putting the link to Professor Unger's essay on Britain's current predicament and how it can use its post-Brexit moment to pursue some of the goals that we've talked about in this episode with regards to the US and Brazil on the webpage for this podcast episode, which along with all of our past episodes, you can find at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.